0: Welcome to the Future of Supply Chain. Each episode, we bring together leaders across the supply chain space to discuss the role of technology and business model innovation on the future of supply chain. The Future of Supply Chain podcast is presented by Dynamo. Dynamo is a pre-seed and seed stage supply chain investor. To learn more about Dynamo and this show, head over to www.dynamo.vc podcasts or subscribe on the platform of your choice. Now let's get into the show. Here's our host,
1: Santosh Sankar. Hey folks, welcome back to the Future Supply Chain Podcast. I'm your host, Santosh Sankar. And joining me today is Michael Martochi, founder and CEO of SwagUp. Welcome, Michael.
0: Thanks, man. Thanks for having me.
1: So I, I call you the king of swag in our office because we, we love the SwagUp experience and credit to Katie on our team for making this happen. But I'd love to just open up and level set the knowledge amongst our listener base. With a quick overview of what SwagUp is.
0: Awesome, yeah. Well, you call me the king of swag. I, I call myself the chief swag officer at the company. So I'll take, I'll take either one. And and it's been great working with you guys as well over the uh, the last you know year or so since starting up. But uh, yeah, I mean, back in twenty seventeen, I basically started the company by myself. I had a few friends that kind of worked, lived down the street that that had joined up, and the original insight was just startups are looking for a better way to get swag. I was at a VC firm for about three months in New York city. And I had a little bit of background in this like custom printing world in, in college. And you know, so I understood the supply chain and the different suppliers that are out there for different products. So kind of brought those together when I was at the start uh, at the VC, because you see all these startups, they get a bunch of funding, they get their new logo, they start, and the first thing they're doing is getting swag. And there just wasn't the company that's like, what is the go-to company that all these companies are going to all these startups are going to? Cause you have like four imprint custom ink and- E promos and like all these like bigger e-commerce sites, and then on the other side you have like this super fragmented market of thirty thousand distributors out there, and ninety percent of them are doing under two and a half million, and they're all kind of doing like the same exact thing in in different ways, and it just seemed like a a market that needed a brand and needed somebody to kind of own it and be like, hey, we're the category defining business, we're the we're the go-to, and so it just started like you know very hacky like Wix website, Trello and Zapier and all these different tools, and just. Put up a landing page and some google ads and facebook ads to see if if companies would reach out and see if there was some intent search base of people looking for a better solution and and it happened to be that there was and within like a month or so we started to get some some orders and it's doing like three 000, four thousand dollars a month while while still at the VC firm i ended up leaving and then one of the first orders was for a swag pack and, and if you go on our site today a lot of the messaging and positioning is still around this concept of like swag packs and and at the time it wasn't popular. This is four and a half years ago. Swag packs were only being done by like some of the most, you know, more innovative kind of people and departments and marketing departments. And this company came to us for a ten thousand dollar order at the time, and they're like, okay, we want to get new hires, a sweatshirt and a notebook and a bottle and a, and all wrapped up in a box and all the same stuff. And if you think about that process from end to end, if you're a company kind of managing that on your own, first off, nobody at a company is typically like the swag person. I mean, somebody gets to do the job, but nobody wants to do the job. And it's not really anybody's core responsibility. And you got to find a supplier for the apparel. You got to find a supplier for the box supplier for this item and that item and try to figure out like, what's high quality items. How do I design them? I got to get a design team involved, order all this, pay different suppliers and, and kind of you know, just manage the logistics of this process from end to end and then send it to some centralized location. You hear stories of people setting up some sub- assembly lines in their office with interns and staying late and stuff and packing boxes. And if you got a remote hire, you're, you're walking to the post office to send it out. So it's just like, there's a lot of reasons why you'd want to build culture and community around the brand and how Swagbox could be used to, to do that. And just the process was just so logistically challenging. I was like, if we can productize this experience and, and become like an end-to-end solution, will we'll do really well. And when we started to focus on the, the swag pack concept, things started to, to take off. And, and ever since then, it's been this constant kind of snowball iteration of understanding the workflows of, you know, enterprise companies and how they leverage and procure brand and merchandise and how we can make their lives easier. And, and also just how the supply chain in this industry is pretty broken and how we can kind of clean it up and, and, and aggregate and consolidate it. So that's what we've been focusing a lot of our time on over the last like for three years is building technology to make this as scalable and, and efficient as possible.
1: And, you know, I'm curious, like, w- what is the supply chain behind an operation like SwagUp look like? Because I think uh, on the surface, it might feel simple. But as I like kind of took a step back before this episode, like th- it's multi-layered and where there are layers, there's communications, there's friction. Like, h- how do you think about the supply chain around you?
0: Well, it's very fragmented and it's very challenging to operate this business. Because if you, if you think about a, a standard order, let's say a company like a company like you guys is coming to us, Dynamo, and you want to put together a pack for your portfolio companies. And, and we don't just do like swag packs. We do bulk items and all, anything you need. But packs have come, kind of become the core offering. And if you want to put something together for your portfolio companies. Let's say it's 100 a, a units and you know, an average kit might have like eight, eight SKUs in it. Those eight SKUs are probably coming from eight different suppliers. They have different turnaround times. They might have different ways in which they receive orders and receive artwork and different cadences of when they get paid and how they respond to you and... And all this stuff, and and then you have the inbound kind of coordination to say, okay, we have this receiving and QA department, and they have to see see that these items come in on time. They have to make sure that the logos are correct, and make sure the items don't have damages and defects, and and that the colors of the products are correct. And then they have to go into you know a storage kind of holding area, waiting for all the sub component skus of like that kit to come in. Uh, and then when they're all ready, then that triggers the assembly line to start packing the products and putting them into kits. And then, okay, where are those products going after that? Are they going out to the customers in bulk to your office, or are they going on our shelves and being shipped one by one? And then, how are you managing that fulfillment and the transfer of data? So, just that's just like one product project end to end, and we're doing hundreds of them. we on you know this month. We'll probably do seven hundred orders or 700 of these projects. And so let's say you have seven or eight component SKUs, that's over close to 6,000 purchase orders from different vendors. And on a given month, we probably work with 200 different vendors or suppliers for all the different components of of these products. And all of them, it's basically like you're custom manufacturing 6,000 unique SKUs every month and coordinating the logistics and the timing to make sure that it all goes right. And if, if one of those components in that order is messed up or no longer available or delayed, it can, can derail the entire thing. So how do, you, how do you deal with these suppliers in a way that is streamlined? So instead of managing a ton of manual communication and back and forth via email, how can you get that more systematic? How can you get data flows out of their systems to know what products are available at any time, what colors are available, what their turnaround times are? There's some Elements of exposure to overseas manufacturing and shipping. All of our suppliers are US based, but they get their component SKUs, like the actual, say, water bottle or notebook are oftentimes coming from from overseas. So there's some some of that exposure as well with everything going on. And but for us, we want to become as vertically integrated as possible in a way that's you know efficient like for, so we own the whole entire kind of warehousing and distribution part so all the products come in from the different suppliers and we handle that process from from that point on but long story short it's it's a very very messy process the suppliers and the carriers etc that we rely on are not super interoperable and and tech driven so we have to kind of become the shepherds of getting them into this future vision and state that, that we want to see to become as efficient and scalable as possible.
1: And you touched on the one point related to product availability. And if there's maybe a theme for 2021, it's probably product availability as we peel back on supply chain. How does one yep. go about managing that? Because like, to your point right like product availability is the output of a calculation that requires like overseas stakeholders suppliers assembly like there's just a lot that goes into it and how do you all stay on top of that especially when you you know think about swag or bulk purchases around the holidays retreats what have you
0: yeah, i mean to your point first off it's it's a lag effect like you need to figure these things out could be 12 months in advance at a minimum sometimes. So when you're thinking about our suppliers, what's their demand forecast, placing orders with their vendors, getting production, getting it back overseas, all that kind of stuff. Like if you didn't see a pandemic coming or you didn't see demand rebounding by a certain point, you're not going to be set up for success and have the product availability that you need. And you can only, every company now is trying to build back up supply at a rapid pace well factories can only deal with so much you know volume and, and if every one of their customers are coming and saying hey that order that we placed for those stainless steel mugs we actually need 3x that because we need to be stocked up and and we can only get so much availability on the on the, the ships coming over they they just physically can't handle that so we're somewhat to a degree, there's an element of some stuff that's out of our control, and we have to do the best that we can to work with. Have a diverse set of suppliers and kind of a broad marketplace type style of, of sourcing. But then at the same time, we need to do a great job of getting ahead of these things. And you know, what we're in a fortunate position in the sense that what we show to our customers is what they'll typically buy. So, for example, we, our site has a curated selection of you know, let's say 250 to 300 products now our database has over 5000 products but it's those 300 that account for about 80% of the sales so you know what we put there on that self-serve kind of you know interface is what's going to drive a lot of the sales so we need to make sure that we're spending a lot of time thinking about what are we showcasing there so our vp of sourcing and merchandising we spend a lot of time going into q4 because q4 is a, the busiest time for us we spend a lot of time in like june and july getting ahead of the curve and saying okay what products are going to be prop, you know, really pos- uh, popular in Q4? What products are really well stocked with our vendors? What products do we want to potentially bring in ourselves from overseas and get blank merchandise on hand? So, cause we know that they're going to sell a lot of, so it's, you really got to stay, try to plan ahead as much as possible and, and, and form strategic like alliances with your supplier partners and give them as much of a heads up as possible and say, hey, here's what demand's looking like for us. Here's our revenue model here. This is what it means for each of the, the different SKUs that we get from you guys and what we expect to use over the uh, the next few months. So I think like data science is a huge part and forecasting and modeling is, is like hugely important for companies to get really good at and then it's like that ongoing product information management are you are you making sure that the products that are no longer available are inactive in your system are you updating inventory levels do you have like api feeds to get the inventory levels straight out of them we were talking about rob and backbone like do you have a way to systematically and programmatically automatically update the product data in your system so that you're not you know manually doing it but and then there's sometimes that you can't automatically do it? And do you use like a BPO or some other outsourcing firm to help you kind of maintain your product data up up to the minute or up to the day or up to the week to try to avoid kind of issues? And and we, well, we, we have this process internally called a repush. And it basically is this idea that like, hey, what we thought we could provide to the customer or what they ordered is actually no longer able to be done. And this wasn't really a huge issue before the pandemic, but it became a very big issue over the last 12 plus or minus months where we we sell something to a customer, we go to place the orders with our vendors, and now it's not possible. The product's no longer available or, or whatever it is. That that peaked at 21% of our orders had to do that at one point. Now we're down to you know single digits, but it's it's a challenging environment. And when you have a lot of products and a lot of vendors, it's it could be a lot to kind of stay on top. So you got to plan ahead as much as possible.
1: So I I heard a few things there around kind of improving the whole procurement process and it sounds like the first one is just having better tools and capabilities around supply demand forecasting which i I think kind of there's there's been a lot of uh, entrepreneurs companies that have come and gone there but continues to be a a, a area of opportunity and then the uh, second as you'd mentioned is just kind of how do you push and pull data a lot easier a lot faster through the supply chain and kind of shout out to Rob and Backbone there who are uh, tackling that. Is there anything else for the the entrepreneurs listening as they think about procurement and building a business around it?
0: I think also just the operational aspects of procurement. So we have like an order management slash purchase order team. And like I said, we're processing about 5,000 purchase orders with our suppliers on a monthly basis and how do you think about handling that capacity at scale because every purchase order has to be one one generated how do you systematically generate those purchase orders in a way that's scalable how do you get them into the systems of of the vendor? so do you push them via api do you push them into a vendor portal do you push them via automatic email and do you manually send the email and then for every purchase order there's this back and forth process like okay the vendor gets it do, was there an issue with the purchase order are, you know is it on track? Did they receive it? Did they, did they give us like an exit factory date? Is there a tracking number? So how do you, all those pieces are, you know, pieces of data that we need to get from our suppliers on an ongoing basis. And, and if you have, like you said, 5,000 of them and each one of them, let's say has 10 touch points along the way from start to finish, that's 50,000 data points that you need to track and collect and, and report on throughout the process. So one is like, how do you get that data in a way that's efficient and scalable? And then also are you monitoring it and reporting on it so that you can get better at it and, and also hold your vendors accountable? Cause I, I think that's another area for a lot of people to really focus on and improve on is, you know, are you, how do you hold your vendors accountable? How do you show them how they're performing? How do you know what good performance looks like? Because vendors that work with like big customers who do care about these things are going to focus on them. And if you show them that you don't really care, they're going to kind of walk all over you and, and you need to have the data to prove. And, and in a way that's symbiotic, like, Hey, let's, let's work on this together. Like this is the SOAs that we're expecting. Here's how you're performing. So I think just like the ops around procurement, I think are really important on a, on a day-to-day basis too.
1: And the, the one thing I guess, before we move on that I'd love to have is I'm staring at one of the myrrh coffee cups that you helped us get. What's kind of the the journey of that? Just so we can have the audience visualize it, because I think for, for some people they they might not be able to visualize like what is this journey like from factory through swag up to get the engraving ultimately to my front door?
0: So specifically mirror is an interesting case because they've kind of evolved a bit. Like they used to go direct, meaning we could buy directly from mirror. And now they use basically for us a supplier, but for them a distributor that distributes into this market. It's an available option. We create a product in our catalog with all the data, the relevant data about that product that we need. We put it up on our site to make it available as one of our options. And then a company like you guys comes along and says, Hey, I want to add this item to our kit, or I want to add this item to our order. You guys order it. We then generate sales orders in our system that generate, and each sales order has component purchase orders. The purchase orders get sent off to the vendor, depending on how we work with that vendor that vendor already is sitting on stock of that, of those mirror tumblers in their facility. So they're not going to mirror at that moment and saying, Hey, just in time, I need you to send us 50 units, a hundred units. They worked with mirror ahead of time in the beginning of the year to secure hundred thousand units, 200,000 units. So they're working with mirror who also has to have those products for retail for the most part. Sometimes, sometimes retailers like mirror will make specific versions of the product that are for like a corporate market. There might be more more room on the item for branding or something, or just something slightly different about it. So you have, you have the difference there where they have to like project inventory out for this industry versus project inventory out for retail. Or if you're like a Patagonia, you just have one skew and it doesn't matter if it's for retail or for the corporate market. And and what they did, Patagonia was like they were supply short on supply over the pandemic because they should their factories down. And they basically pulled a lot of the stock out of this industry and they pulled it over for retail. So on that side like demand planning is is interesting exercise but a company like the distributor will basically hold on to a hundred thousand units of mirror. we place our order with them they then take a hundred units off out of their stock there's a purchase order for it it goes they do the actual decoration so we provide them the instructions of how it needs to be decorated how it's how it has to look they produce it and then they send it to us and then our, like i said our process there is We, we run a fulfillment center and and basically operation center where everything gets received quality checked. We check, okay, is, is the logo on correctly? Is it the right size? Is the mug damaged? If there's any exceptions, it'll get brought back to the vendor to, uh, to get replaced and fixed or credits issued. And then if not, it'll go through our process. And then it's the life cycle of that product will depend on how, how you guys decided to leverage it. So. There's a few. There's a few different parties involved now. For us, at scale, we'll become a bit more vertically integrated where it makes sense. I think when you're, you know, we bootstrap to this point still four and a half years in, and we'll, we'll probably raise money, but up to this point we haven't. And in that scenario, you want to leverage the fixed assets that other people have. There's a ton of machines out there. There's a ton of inventory out there, and let other people with bigger balance sheets sit on that and. And suck their cash up, whereas we'll focus on technology and demand and growth, and just-in-time manufacturing. And and we have a negative cash conversion cycle, so we we're actually as we grow, the amount of cash in the business continues to grow because of we get to hold on to our customers' cash. So, the the, the supply chain, though, long story short, will get more more simplified with less intermediaries at scale for us. That's just a matter of when we want to make that switch.
1: Yep. Yep. I'd be curious kind of your thoughts here. We invested in a quality control company called Factored recently, and I think that revealed to us and kind of increased our appreciation around this whole function around QC inspections. How's that all handled? Because, I mean, there's going to be multiple kind of QC points if I had to guess if I'm ordering swag and then I want like a logo or decal applied on it. How do you all tackle that?
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, there's like two core parts to quality control. But first, there's the product itself before we make it available. So if if one of our you know, supplier partners or retailers that we like to buy products from comes out with a new item, we'll want to do an initial quality check to say, okay, Get, purchase that item in, in blank or bulk or whatever, and just say, okay, does, is this a product that people are going to like? Does it stand up? Is it high quality? You know, and, and use it ourselves and check it out. Okay. Is this something that we want to add to our site and make it available? So because, because you have both sides, it's the product quality itself, and then there's the decoration product quality itself. So assuming that we're down, we, we like the quality of that t-shirt and we want to make it available in the future. Then, like I said, every single purchase order is going through a deep quality check. So we have an entire quality control team. It's led by a woman that used to lead quality control at the real real. And they have a whole interface like app that we built for them where they could say, okay, here's the purchase order. This is what it's supposed to look like. This is the units that are supposed to be in there. So you're looking at quality. You're also looking at quantity type stuff. So you want to see, is like I said, is is the shirt the right color is the logo the right color is it straight is it the right size so there's there's a lot of pieces to kind of check and then like i said you got to push that back to the supplier if there's an exception and there's there's the component it was an issue with the component or was it an issue with the decoration and some of our suppliers do both the component and the decoration so basically you you submit one purchase order for the bottle with the logo on it and then others you're submitting purchase orders for the blank hat and the and the embroidery on that hat comes from somewhere else. So sometimes there can be different parties involved. But the quality control though is also really important because t- in this industry, historically, you just have a lot of middlemen uh, resellers and they, even a company like a four imprint or something, they're just sending everything straight from the factories, straight from their supplier partners, because that's most efficient. They don't want to run big operations. It's it's double shipment, all that kind of stuff. We've never been into that. We've always like, we want to have control of the process. We want to see the products because there's nothing worse than you send out, a you know you guys order 50 hats from us and we send them to you. And it's got some other company's logo on them, you know. Like that—that's—that's. That's, there's probably nothing worse that we could do that, than do that, especially if we were to send it directly to like a new hire or something. So, quality control, I think, is an undervalued thing, uh, an undervalued aspect of, of some of this, especially in like this asset light model where like, oh, anybody can be an entrepreneur, and anybody can start selling products, and anybody can drop ship from Alibaba. Well, if you're not doing quality control, your attention's going to suck, and, and it's mm. going to be very difficult to build a business around that.
1: That's uh, I think really really great points really great points, and I, I'm I'm gonna kind of lean into that because I think like part of the reason we've had or, or or my belief is part of the reason we've had such a great experience with SwagUp is related to supply chains, so, right? Like you mentioned QA, but it's, there's also little things like being able to hold on to bulk order and ship during the holiday season. Like how do you think about supply chain actually driving customer happiness? Cause up until COVID, logistics supply chain, that's just the stuff that happened in the back of house. Most people didn't really pay mind to it.
0: Yeah. Well I I think when we started though, we saw as we talked to customers, like we didn't go out to build a supply chain as a service type platform. And our and our vision for the future is very much down that down that path. But that's not what we set out to do. It's just a natural kind of evolution of talking to customers. Like if you, you know, if you hear 10 straight customers in a row say how much of a pain in the ass it is to deal with swag orders and procurement and, oh, I have this storage closet overflowing with a bunch of swag or our team members go into the closet and pick whatever they want and I can't keep track of inventory or this new hire started yesterday and we ran out of shirts for them. Like, you just hear these things over and over and over again. And and the natural, you know, reaction to that is like, oh, okay, let's build them this technology to manage this process from end to end. And let's take this off of their hands and in the cloud. And let's give them no reason why they're gonna have to use another partner and and take care of any reason why they would say, okay, let's not do swag. And what we've seen is that like as you make this process frictionless, companies decide, oh, let's like Slack so was super simple for us for new hires. Like, what are some other ways that we can start leveraging it? So by by reducing the friction on their end, you start to open up the market and grow the market, which is which is really interesting. But you know, the taking on different parts of the process, like doing storage and inventory management and distribution and creating integrations with other distribution points, like we have a Shopify app, we have a Zapier app, we have our API. We're just trying to make it as simple as possible for, for people to, to leverage us and to leverage their inventory in the moments that matter most to them. And that's what it ends up making their life easier, but also ends up they order more often, they reorder more often, and the average order size go up and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So by, by making a delightful, frictionless experience, And naturally, if you vertically integrate a lot of those processes, like us actually owning our own fulfillment operations makes it easier for us to be flexible and nimble and and cost efficient and all this kind of stuff. It just makes for a higher quality experience that people want to start leveraging more. So basically the idea is just looking, working backwards from what the customers want and giving them no reason to say no and, and eliminating the friction and, and and the way that that you know, looks is us owning, creating an end-to-end product uh, and, and experience versus just a p- specific part of it. Which, which creates a moat around the business because the fact that we create this end-to-end experience is it's very difficult to replicate.
1: Yep. Yep. Makes sense. So, I'm gonna uh, shift gears here a little bit as we uh, wrap up. and I, I'd be curious, as a founder, Michael, like do you have any rituals, habits that kind of keep you in the zone, help you be a better founder or leader?. Not really. I'm not a
0: big like ritual person. I mean, first off, my the biggest thing I do is I just read a lot. I, I just love learning Twitter. I'm on Twitter a lot and not from like an entertainment and social standpoint, but more so as a top of funnel knowledge acquisition platform what am i interacting with recent newsletters recent posts that came out from different people blog posts seeing different charts and reports so what's what's actually happening in the world like I, I use that as like the pulse check of what's what's going on and i I turned off the hour the the, the apple like how many time you've been spending on your phone because I think I'd be kind of uh, frightened if I looked at how much time I spend on Twitter, but uh, I I spend a lot of time reading. I spend a lot of time learning from businesses that I really respect. So I've I've read a lot about Amazon and a lot about how they built kind of their microservices architecture and kind of spinning out their fixed assets into business lines that other people can leverage that helps them kind of reach scale that other people can't. So it's not necessarily about rituals and habits. It's just this habitual kind of need and desire to constantly learn and and acquire knowledge from from other people and other sources i I try to stay healthy and fit and and go for runs and go to the gym at least you know four or five days a week but beyond that i don't you know i don't have a systematic approach to like how i you know handle the day-to-day the the other main thing though is that i'm a very big proponent of building infrastructure and scale and teams around me in the first two and a half years the business was very, very dependent on me being involved to push things forward, to make progress, to, you know, deal with the day-to-day volume and, and operational needs. And, you know, there there became a point where I started to become a bottleneck. And even if you have a lot of confidence in yourself and, and your ability to, to accomplish anything, at a certain point, if you're not actually doing it because you can't, it, you're better off handing that off to other people. And, and there's an element of like inherent laziness too that I think is a little bit valuable sometimes for leaders. It's like, let other people do things, even if you think it's not going to be done as well, like getting it done is still better. Progress is better. And and you also realize a lot of times people surprise you and they do it just as well or, or maybe better than you would have done it. And so it's kind of crafted this philosophy for me over time of like, you have to identify what are the core pillars of the business? Like what if you think sourcing or data or whatever are, are the core pillars of, of your business, then finding like world-class like leaders that can run those parts of the business and let them build empires and let them run it and trust them and it's it all starts with trust but that is that's how i kind of free myself up to think about the long term of the business and be strategic and not get stuck in the weeds in the mud which i think is really really valuable because in startups most most of the time everybody in your company is like so busy everybody's in the weeds they're in the details and somebody at least one person the ceo for sure should be clear-minded and able to see the broader picture and able to see the future and think about it. And if nobody is in that position, I think it's, it's really detrimental for the company. So I just, I'm always trying to build scale and infrastructure around me so that I'm not the one you know, holding up anything or dependent to, to move tasks along.
1: Makes sense. Makes sense. And to uh, kind of wrap it up, I, I'd be curious. If you had to start a supply chain business today, with the knowledge from running swag up, where would you focus?
0: Well, I don't know. I mean, there there was an interesting tweet that I I think I saw you weigh on weigh in on too, of like asset light versus asset heavy or this idea of focusing on return on equity or, or return on invested equity versus actually building sustainable infrastructure that you know you can scale scale upon. And everybody is taking this like pandemic is an opportunity to shit on companies that were asset light and saying like, Oh, well they should have had a ton of inventory or they should have had a ton of machinery or they should have had a, their own facilities and stuff. And like, I, I get the point they're trying to make, but at the same time, like this is a black swan type of event and it, there was still a lot of like economic value created by shared infrastructure and the, and having like an asset light type model. So I wouldn't be so so quick to just jump to like, oh, we need to like overinvest in everything. We have to build out all these facilities and build out all this inventory and, and all that kind of stuff. And not not to say that, that answers your question. I'm sure we can have a whole episode going into the pros and cons of those those different models. But I I think to your point, it's like you have to start with the quality and availability of of the data. And I, I'll go back to Rob. Like I the promise that they have at Backbone and the product that they're building like is really a a foundational step one that allows you to build a lot of downstream automation off of that if you can get the product data correct. So I would, you know, I would just say focus on the data first and building like a scalable infrastructure versus just going straight to like the user interfaces and building great experiences. Like you have to equally think about building a foundation because our business today is, is not constrained by demand. It's constrained by our operational Capabilities—it's it's constrained by our ability to update data quickly. It's constrained by our supplier partners and how we interact with them. It has nothing to do with with demand. So just figuring out how you can unblock flow and and capacity—I don't know the specific product to to do it—but it's it's a real problem for for companies like us.
1: Yep. Well, Michael, this has been uh, an an awesome episode. I I love the vantage point with which you are approaching or approach this conversation and as always remain big fans and encourage our listeners to uh, check out the magic that swag up look forward to uh, catching up again soon cheers Yep, thanks
0: for having me thanks for listening if you enjoyed this episode leave us a five-star review and tell us what you liked and be sure to head over to podcast.dynamo.vc to keep up to date with our latest content or subscribe on the podcast platform of your choice until next time